a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me today in Bible study. Today we're beginning a series of studies from the book of Exodus. We'll be mostly in Exodus for the next couple of months, maybe with a couple of exceptions. But before we zoom into chapter 1 and start looking at the book itself, I want us to zoom out for just a few minutes to try to get, I guess you might call it a bird's eye view of the book, kind of see it as a whole. It's a fascinating book. I think you're going to agree with me, probably already do, but it's just fascinating stuff here. The book of Exodus begins, after some words of introduction to kind of give us some perspective, with the birth of Moses, probably 1526 B.C., about 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus. When the book comes to an end, which would be about 80 years later, Moses and the Israelites have reached Mount Sinai. They've left Egypt and have gotten to Sinai. That's about three months after the exodus from Egypt. That would have been in 1446 B.C. Now, I say those dates as if I'm quite sure about them. (laughs) The truth is, scholars disagree with each other about these kind of things, about some of the dates anyway in the Old Testament. So we've got to be careful. We don't get too dogmatic about these dates. But there is, I think, some significant evidence that those dates are probably pretty close. It's also interesting, I think, that beginning a little over 130 years ago, around the year 1888 when this started, but it continued for several years after that, God allowed a very important archaeological discovery to be made. It turned out to be a great treasure, and it was called, or it's called now, the Amarna Tablets, Amarna Letters, or Amarna Tablets. The name Amarna comes from the place where they were found in Egypt along the Nile River. That's A-M-A-R-N-A. It It was a place about 200 miles south of Cairo on the Nile River. But the Amarna tablets consist of about three to 400 clay tablets, which turn out to be correspondence between diplomats in Egypt, important people in Egypt, and important people there in Canaan, where, of course, the children of Israel were going to take over the land. God's instruction. God told Abraham, this is going to be your land. I'm going to give you this land. So he's in the process of fulfilling that promise. But these tablets tell us, about some chaos that was happening in and around the area of Jerusalem around 1400 B.C. And the chaos, according to these tablets, was caused by a group of people that were called the Habiru. The Habiru, when I first saw that word, I thought, so? (laughs) But it turns out in the Akkadian language, which was the language they used to communicate back and forth at that point between Egypt and Canaan, uh, the Akkadian language uh, Habiru means the Hebrews. It's a reference to the Hebrews, the Israelites. That was in the early part of the 14th century, around 1400 B.C. That would have been the time, according to Scripture, when Joshua would have been conquering the Promised Land. So yes, it makes sense. There would have been chaos going on. And they were talking about it in the Amarna tablets. And, and the Amarna tablets, as well as biblical references, I think, helped settle an early date for the Exodus of 1446 B.C. I think that's probably a pretty good guess. Now, let me ask you, do you remember how the book of Genesis concludes? Do you remember what was going on? If you remember, uh, God had supernaturally enabled Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and so he was able to help Egypt be preserved and actually brought great wealth into Egypt during the seven years of famine when Joseph had been appointed prime minister of Egypt. Eventually, his father, Jacob, and his brothers began to suffer under the famine as well, and without going through the whole story, we did that a few weeks ago, They came down to buy food. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself, and he moves all his family there to Egypt. And the book of Genesis closes with the death of Jacob and his burial back in the cave at Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah had already been buried. But finally, we get to the last chapter of Genesis, and it records the death and embalming of Joseph. Of course, he has to be taken back to the Promised Land as well to be buried. He knew eventually they'd be taken back, and when they went back, he wanted them to take his bones with them. (laughs) Now, we can't be sure of the exact date that we're talking about here at the end of Genesis, but a reasonable guess would be somewhere around 1660 B.C. There is some debate about just how long the Israelites actually stayed in Egypt, how long they lived there before God brought them out with Moses in 1446. And when we first start studying this in Scripture, at first glance, sometimes we look at it and wow, this looks like a contradiction in the Bible. That can be our first thought. 
Now, we know if we believe the Bible is God's Word, there's no contradiction there, right? I mean, it isn't a contradiction. There are times when we look at Scripture and we think we see an error or we think we see a contradiction, but knowing that it's God's Word, we realize this is a signal that I need to do some more digging into God's Word so I can understand this. But here's the problem I'm talking about right now. In Exodus chapter 12, we read this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It's Exodus chapter 12. But there's a problem with that. When we try to make it fit the genealogical information that the Bible gives us in Chronicles as well as in Exodus, it seems to be way, way too long a period for them to have been in Egypt. But I know that's not really conclusive because sometimes genealogies in the Bible will skip some generations, but still it's really hard to make it fit. Not only that, but there's something Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 3 and when he's referring to this, and he wrote this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, it is plural referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, singular. And he says that's Christ. He's talking about Jesus. And then he says in verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, wait a minute, 430 years after what? 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham. See verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham, and then the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So Paul seems to be saying that, and of course Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is all scripture we're talking about here, that the Exodus occurred 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham. And there were at least a couple of hundred years between the time the promises were made to Abraham and the time when Joseph brought his family down into Egypt. But that time frame seems to fit the details a whole lot better than 430 years total in Egypt. But of course, on the surface, it looks like Paul's contradicting Moses. Now, we know he didn't, but what's going on here? Well, I want to talk about this for a minute because it turns out to be a really good illustration of how an apparent contradiction in the Bible is not really a contradiction at all. So let me explain what I'm talking about. The Old Testament that we read in English is based on the Hebrew text, of course. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and there is a specific Hebrew text referred to as the Masoretic text, M-A-S-O-R-E-T-I-C, Masoretic text, that is the basis for our English Bible. It also happens to be the same text that the Jews use when they translate what we call the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, but they base it on the Masoretic text as well. Now, here's something interesting. Sometime between 400 and 700 B.C., the Samaritans, you remember the Samaritans lived just north of, the, of Judea there? Uh, they had their own language, and they copied the first five books of the Old Testament using their own language, their own alphabet. And today we call that the Samaritan Pentateuch because the Pentateuch is the word we use for the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And it turns out that we have manuscripts of the Samaritan Pentateuch that are actually older than the Masoretic text manuscripts. Isn't that interesting? We have Samaritan Pentateuch manuscripts that date back to 300 years before Jesus was born. Pretty amazing for ancient manuscripts. Also, something else happened in about 300 years before Jesus was born. You may remember that Jews were scattered all over the area around the Mediterranean Sea there, and many of them were able to speak Greek but not Hebrew. They'd been away from the promised land for a long time and they weren't able to speak Hebrew. And so what they did is they had scholars translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek so they could read the Old Testament, could read their Bible. The truth is there were several different Greek translations of the Old Testament available, but the most famous one is a translation that we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint. It was a translation used in the days of the New Testament by most of the writers of the New Testament. And interestingly, the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint, which are both translations of the Hebrew text, both of them, remember, are older than the oldest Masoretic text manuscripts we have, they have a slightly different reading of this verse we're looking at in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. So I want you to look at this screen now. There's a comparison here of the two texts. The Masoretic text is there on the left, 
the Septuagint and Samaritan Pentateuch text is on the right. And look at the, the one on the right there. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel and of their fathers, which they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt, was 430 years. You hear what he's saying there? 430 years that they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt. Not just in the land of Egypt. In the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt. And for what it's worth, the, the Jewish historian Josephus from the first century, he also believed this reading was the correct one. So it seems that it's at least possible that an early scribe copying the early Masoretic text may have omitted those phrases and of their fathers and the phrase in the land of Canaan, but that God has providentially provided a way for us to see what the original text said by preserving the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch. So once again, it seems that the best way to understand this is that the 430 years would refer to the time between the covenant God made with Abraham, that original promise, and the time they left Egypt. So that means there would have been approximately 215 years of living in Palestine that he's talking about, and then another 215 years living down in Egypt. Now, some people might think about that for a few minutes and say, no, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, Steve. How on earth could the population of the Israelites increase from fewer than 100? Weren't there 70 that went down to Egypt from when, when, when Joseph was down there? Anyway, from that small number to roughly 2 million of them in the Exodus, if it only took 215 years, the population couldn't have possibly grown that fast, could it? <laughs> but we think like that because we tend to think in terms of today's birth rates. <laughs> That's not as unreasonable as you might think at first. We tend to forget, first of all, how many babies they often had in those days just normally. And we also tend to forget what exponential population increases can be like. <laughs> Uh, for example, if you started with 20 couples, 40 people, and each of them had 10 children, and I know that may seem like a lot to us today, but in olden times, I don't think that necessarily was a lot. Uh, but stay with me here anyway, all the way through here. And, and let's suppose that each succeeding generation of couples has 10 children too. You'd be surprised how quickly the numbers can get into the millions. For example, after the first generation, you'd have the original 40 plus 200 children, 20 couples, 10 children each, 200 children. In the second generation, you'd have those 240 plus 1,000 children. There'd be those 200 kids, make 100 couples, 10 times, 10 children each would be 1,000 children. I'm not going to say that for every generation, but after the third generation, you'd have about 5,000 children. After the fourth generation, 25,000. The fifth generation, roughly 125,000. The sixth generation, you'd have about 600,000 kids. The seventh generation, you'd have about three million. It's a lot more feasible than you think. <laughs> Plus, I think we have to realize that God was doing something supernatural with the children of Israel. He was intent on building a nation while they were in Egypt. So he was doing something supernatural, or at least providential, to cause them to grow rapidly, explosively, to build a nation. And he gives us a couple of hints of that. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we read, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Not just a little bit, greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. There's a hint that God was doing something supernatural and they were having lots and lots of babies. This implies an explosive growth. And then look on down at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. There's also at least a little bit of evidence that Jochebed, Moses' mother, was at least 48 years old when she had Moses. When we try to put the dates and years together, it seems that Moses was born 48 years after her father died and some scholars say she might have been nearer 70. So there's a possible clue that God was giving the Israelite women some extended childbearing years because he intended to rapidly increase the population of Israel. The point of sharing all this, I know we're maybe getting a little too bogged down in details, is that so-called biblical contradictions always have explanations which we 
can sometimes find by just digging a little. Sometimes we dig and still can't figure it out, but, but many, many times we can see why it looks like a contradiction, why it really isn't. Do you remember a man named R.A. Torrey? He was a great Bible teacher, a great preacher, scholar, author, wrote a lot of wonderful books. Uh, he lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He died in 1928. But he said once, he once said in one of his books that when he was a young man, he was confident that he had a list of a thousand errors and contradiction in the Bible. Now, he could say that because in those days there were skeptics around who seemed to just delight in writing books to debunk the Bible, and then what they tried to do is show all the what they perceived to be errors and contradictions in the Bible. They would write books showing these things, and Tory had one. He thought, I, I knew there were a thousand errors. He said, now I'm an old man, and he said, I've crossed off all those but seven. I've crossed 993 of them off the list. Uh, he said, there's still seven that I just don't understand. It looks like an error. But he said, I'm convinced now, after crossing off the 993 that I thought were errors, <laughs> that those seven apparent contradictions are really not a problem with this book. He said, they're a problem with my ability to understand it. So he trusted the Bible. He was a great Bible teacher. That's what we need to do. All right. Now, what I want us to do in the next few minutes is take a quick walk through this book we call Exodus, just from beginning to end, just kind of get a picture of the overall content of the book. So if you've got your Bible or if you've got a Bible app on your phone, you may want to open it up and just kind of page through the book with me. It starts out in chapter 1 with an explanation of the rapid increase of the population of Israel in Egypt, causing them to be threatening to the Pharaoh, so he enslaves them to keep them under control. You may remember he also tries to control their exploding population by having the boy babies killed. In chapter 2, we learn about the birth of Moses, probably around 1525 B.C., and his adoption by Pharaoh's daughter, who turns out to use Jochebed, Moses' mother, as his wet nurse. We also read about how when he grew up and was a young man, he killed an Egyptian, and he had to flee for his life to Midian, where he was given Zipporah for a wife. And chapter 2 ends with the Israelites crying out for deliverance from their slavery, and God reminds us there, of course, he's very much aware of what's going on. He's heard all their cries. It's not like he doesn't know. He knows, and he's going to handle things. We have to trust him when the going seems rough and we don't understand. In chapter 3, we have Moses' first encounter with God at the burning bush. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But that's a very powerful passage of Scripture. In chapter 4, Moses argues with God about his calling. He's, I don't think I'm the one, God. He manages to make the Lord angry. <laughs> Uh, God had taught Moses humility. At first, he was pretty arrogant, thought he could handle things on his own. God taught him, no, you can't. And he had thoroughly learned that lesson so much, he was falling in the other ditch now, saying, no, 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 God, you got to take somebody else. I'm not, I can't do this. No, no, no. Now, God loves it when we get that kind of attitude. You understand that, right? Because when we get the attitude, as long as we don't get unbalanced, Moses got unbalanced, but if we get the attitude that, Lord, I cannot do this, if it's going to happen, you're going to have to do it through me. See, that would have been a good attitude for Moses to have. That's, that's what we need to have. God, I can't do this. I'm too weak. I need you. Do you remember how Paul had to deal with this also in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? You know, he, he was, uh, he'd given these incredible visions, and he said, lest I be exalted above measure, God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from getting proud and arrogant and exalted above measure. And he said, I asked the Lord, take it away. Take, please take it away. Ask him three times. And he said, the Lord said, no, I'm not going to take it away. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And so Paul learned to boast in his weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon him. Moses had to learn that lesson too. We all need to learn that lesson. This chapter concludes with Aaron meeting him, and together they explain to the elders of Israel what God's going to do. And at least at first, everyone seems to be excited. Everybody seems to be on board. But beginning in chapter 5, as they begin to confront Pharaoh, and as the release proves to be a lot more difficult than the elders had counted on, <laughs> the elders begin what's going to be a very familiar process. It's, it's just going to go on and on and on. This process of griping and complaining and blaming Moses for all their problems and moaning and groaning. <laughs> and he's going to have to deal with that for many, many years. Over the next six chapters, we see the supernatural, miraculous confrontation of God, the true God, Jehovah God, against the gods of Egypt, 
until finally, after the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, the Exodus begins in chapter 12. Also in chapter 12, God gives them strict instructions for observing the Passover. A lot of things there that point us to Jesus. In chapter 13, they're told how to consecrate and how to redeem the firstborn, how to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which started the day after Passover. Passover was always on the same day of the year. Nisan was the first month of the year. Nisan 14th was Passover. Nisan 15th was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after Passover. Also in chapter 13, God begins to lead them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In chapter 14, we find them miraculously crossing the Red Sea. In chapter 15, we find them celebrating and God makes the bitter water sweet for them. In chapter 16, we read how God began to provide them manna and quail. In chapter 17, God provides water from a rock. Chapter 17 is also where we learn that they defeated the Amalekites when Moses held the rod of God high and Moses led the battle. And God at that point gives us one of his compound names. You know, God gives himself wonderful compound names that teach us things about him. Jehovah Nissi is the name he gave himself here. The Lord is our standard of victory, our banner of victory. In chapter 18, God used Jethro to help Moses realize you can't do all of this yourself, Moses. You need to learn how to delegate responsibility. So Jethro helped him be a more effective leader. In chapter 19, three months after leaving Egypt, they arrive at Mount Sinai. And God speaks to Moses, of course, from this mountain. In chapter 20, Moses receives the Ten Commandments. God gave them to him on Mount Sinai. And after these Ten Commandments, God also gave him a whole lot of other laws in chapters 21, 22, 23, 24. And these laws are going to be fleshed out and increased in the book of Leviticus. And as we read all these laws and see how much Exodus is devoted to these laws that God gives, we begin to realize, and it's very important for us as Christians to realize this, guys. Please make sure you understand this. The laws fall into different groups, different categories. There are different types of laws. I've seen Christians confused and bumfuzzled because they didn't know how to separate the laws into categories. And so somebody came along and tries to do away with God's moral law on the same basis that, that we've done away with one of God's other laws. Let me explain what I mean. Some of God's laws really are part of his eternal moral law. And they're binding on all of us, all people at all times. I'm talking about things like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. These are all part of God's eternal moral law. But some of the other laws are not that. They're, they're laws that God gave Israel particularly to keep them separated and distinct from other nations. In other words, to keep Israel holy. That's what the word holy means, separated. And I'm talking about now laws like laws regarding circumcision or the dietary laws or the Sabbath laws, the holy day laws, laws forbidding them to do certain things that pagans did. You know, there's some things we read the law and we scratch our head and we say, what on earth did God give them that command for? And then when we dig a little deeper, uh, we learned that these were things that pagans were doing to worship their gods. And God was saying, you must not be like them. You're different. You are holy. Don't do that stuff. Don't act like them. <laughs> Some of the laws were laws that were given specifically to point out their need for the atonement for their sins. They needed forgiveness. They needed cleansing. And these are all laws that are picturing Jesus. They're foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do when he comes and dies on the cross hundreds of years later. And here we're talking about laws that relate, for example, to the animal sacrifices or, or laws that relate to the priesthood. Of course, they're no longer binding on us either. And then some more of the laws God gave them just to keep the nation running smoothly, just kind of like an efficient government. He wanted them to have laws that would work and keep people working and functioning together. Uh, like, for example, there was a law that they had to build a little wall around the edge of their flat roofs. Remember, they had flat roofs so they could go out there and get cool up on the roof. They would sit on the roof and they had steps on the outside that led up to the roof. And God said, you need a little wall around the edge of that roof because that would keep people from falling off. It was a hazard. Uh, they also had a law that said a creditor could not enter the home of someone who owed him money in order to try to collect that money. He couldn't go into their home to get it. And so Christians who aren't careful to make these distinctions can get, really get confused when someone tries to put some of God's eternal moral laws 
in the same category, for example, as the holiness code, just to, to use one example. So it's very important. In Exodus chapters 25 through 31, while Moses is still up on Mount Sinai, God gives Moses one other important thing. He gives him detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and all the items of furniture that were associated with the tabernacle and the priestly garments and how the priests were to be consecrated. In chapter 32, Moses finally comes down from the mountain only to find them worshiping this golden calf. So Moses destroys the calf. Of course, he threw the tablets of the law down and broke them as well. And he grinds up the gold from the calf and makes them drink it. In chapter 33, God gives instructions for the rest of their journey. He promises them that he will be with them. In chapter 34, God gives Moses basically a photocopy of the tablets of the law that Moses has destroyed. God gave him another set of tablets. And when Moses came back down off the mountain, his face was shining with the glory of the Lord. Then finally, to conclude the book of Exodus in chapters 35 through 40, they took offerings from the people. The people were so generous they had to ask them to stop uh, so they could complete the building of the tabernacle according to God's instructions. The book of Exodus comes to an end with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and leading them day by day with the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So there's kind of a summary of the book. Now, as you read through it, you realize this is a book full of miracles, full of amazing historical events, supernatural events, and full of things that point us to Jesus, who would be born in Bethlehem about 1,500 years later. A lot of pointers to Jesus in Exodus. So before we get into the first four chapters of Exodus, I'd like just to take a few more minutes and think about some of the ways this book points us to Jesus. The truth is, guys, we've said this before. I'm just underlining it. It's very important every time we study the Old Testament to think about that. What is God saying here that might be a pointer to Jesus? How is God doing things that might remind us of what he's going to do in the New Testament when Jesus comes? Listen, every time God got ready to reveal more of himself to the world, you know what he would do? He would raise up a man and he would make promises to his chosen men. And of course, he's God. He's going to fulfill every one of his promises. And in certain ways, each one of these men point us to Jesus, point us to Christ. So for example, when early men just totally gave themselves up to horrible sin and total depravity to the point that the earth became just overwhelmed with wickedness and sin, evil, and the time was right for God to show himself as the righteous judge who just cannot ignore sin. He raised up a righteous man, Noah. And when God destroyed the wicked men who had overwhelmed the world, he spared Noah. And he used Noah to continue the human race with new promises that he gave Noah of mercy and grace. Later, you may remember, God raised up faithful Abraham. And he gave Abraham more promises, including the promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Later, God raised up Isaac. Then he raised up Jacob. Then he raised up Joseph. We saw that a few weeks ago. We studied the life of Joseph. But eventually, the children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. It doesn't look like the world's going to be blessed through them at all. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look like God's keeping his promises. But he is. It's just that his timing and our timing are usually very different. <laughs> but then God raised up Moses, and God used Moses to remind Israel and all the world the way to blessing. He's also going to remind us through Moses that we all desperately need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. And it turns out to be extremely amazing how God worked things into the life of Moses that remind us of Jesus. Jesus is going to come 1,400 years later, over 1,400 years later. And it's just amazing. If you do a search on the Internet, you can probably find some of these similarities between Moses and Jesus but here are some that I found I'm just going to share with you very quickly. Here, let's just work through this. I'll put them up here on the screen so you can see them with your eyes as I read through them. So here's the first one. Moses. At the birth of Moses, Israel was very low and was ruled over by Egypt. At the birth of Jesus, Israel was very low, was ruled over by Rome. At the birth of Moses, Pharaoh ordered all baby boys to be killed. 
At the birth of Jesus, Herod ordered all baby boys to be killed. Moses was hidden in Egypt for a time from Pharaoh. He had to stay away from his people until the Pharaoh who wanted to kill him died. Jesus was hidden in Egypt. If you remember, Joseph had to take Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt for a time hidden from Herod. He had to stay away from his people until Herod, who wanted to kill him, had died. Moses was named because he was drawn out of the water. Remember that? Well, Jesus was drawn up out of the water also to begin his ministry. Moses was raised by a man who was not his biological father. Jesus was raised by a man who was not his biological father, Joseph. After being rejected, Moses took a wife, Zipporah, from outside Israel. After being rejected, Jesus took a wife, the church, from outside Israel. Moses had compassion on his enslaved people. Jesus had compassion on his enslaved people. Moses befriended women at a well, giving them water for their animals. Jesus befriended a woman at a well, giving her living water. Moses' ministry began when the voice of God was heard at a burning bush. Jesus began his ministry when the voice of God was heard at his baptism. Moses came to his people and led them to the promised land. Jesus came to his people and led them to the promised land. Moses performed many miracles to point people to God. Jesus performed many miracles to point people to God. Moses set Israel free so they could serve and worship God. Jesus set us free so that we could serve and worship God. Moses used the blood of a lamb to protect the people from death. And as the Lamb of God, of course, Jesus used his own blood to protect us from death. Moses instituted a covenant meal called the Passover to commemorate the way God brought them to freedom. Jesus instituted a covenant meal as well. We call it the Lord's Supper, but it was to replace Passover to commemorate the way God brought us into freedom. Moses fed people supernaturally. Jesus fed people supernaturally. Moses fed people bread from heaven, the manna. Jesus is the manna. He's the bread of heaven. Moses gave Israel the Ten Commandments from the mountain to show the way to blessing and to show us our need for a deliverer. Jesus also gave us a sermon on the mount to show us the way to blessing and to show us our need for a deliverer. Moses was a judge. Jesus is the ultimate judge. Moses sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the people. Jesus sprinkled his own blood, the blood of the new covenant, on us. Moses interceded for Israel. Jesus intercedes for us. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Moses' face shone with the glory of God. Jesus' face shone with the glory of God. At, at the transfiguration, remember? Moses instructed people on how to worship God. Jesus instructed people on how to worship God. The people Moses came to rescue often complained and rejected him. The people Jesus came to rescue complained and rejected him. Moses chose 12 men to go and bring back fruit. Jesus chose 12 men to go and bring back fruit. Moses was a shepherd of God's people. Jesus is the great shepherd of God's people. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we could probably go on and on and on if we kept studying and digging, but this is kind of a brief overview of some of the ways that Moses, as a man, points us to Jesus. And here are a few other things we read about in Exodus that point us to Jesus. When God brought them out of slavery, he led them through the Red Sea. Remember that? Well, when Jesus brings us out of slavery, he leads us through baptism. In Exodus, life-giving water came from a rock. Jesus, who is our rock, gives us rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit. In Exodus, we learn about the tabernacle, which had an outer court, an inner holy place, and a most holy place, where God dwelt. In the New Testament, we learn that we have an outer body, an inner soul, and a heart or spirit where God dwells when we trust Jesus. Moses knew that blood must be applied to the mercy seat, 
But only the high priest could go inside the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus, of course, applied his own blood to the mercy seat and tore the veil in two from top to bottom so we can enter the presence of God any time, not just one man one time a year. In Exodus, high priests were appointed to make atonement for sin. In the New Testament, Jesus is our great high priest who makes atonement for sin. In Exodus, there was only one entrance to the most holy place and the presence of God. It was through the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place. In the New Testament, we learn that there's only one entrance to the Father, and that's through the veil, which is the body of Jesus. In the the Exodus, before men could come to God, a sacrifice had to be made at the bronze altar, just outside the entrance to the tabernacle. And in the New Testament, before we can come to God, the sacrifice of Jesus himself had to be made at the cross, just outside the gates of the city. The water of the bronze laver in Exodus was used for cleansing. In the New Testament, Jesus cleanses us with the washing of water by the word. In Exodus, the menorah, the lampstand, brought light into the holy place so the priests could see to carry out their duties. In the New Testament, Jesus is our light. He illumines our minds so that we can carry out our duties. In Exodus, the table of the showbread pointed to God as provider. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bread, the bread of life and our spiritual provider. In Exodus, the altar of incense caused an aroma of incense to cover the mercy seat, which was the presence of God. In the New Testament, it's our prayers that go into the throne room of God. The incense is a type of our prayers as Christians. Now, that may seem like a lot of pointers to Jesus to you, and maybe your eyes are kind of glazing over, but I'm pretty sure, like I said, if we looked at the details of Exodus even more, we could find more things there that would point us to Jesus. So again, it turns out that the entire Old Testament is like a bright, shining, neon sign flashing Jesus, 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 pointing us to Jesus. And it shines brightly through the Old Testament, but nowhere does it shine more brightly or point more clearly than in Exodus. It's just such a powerful book. Now, with that overview of this incredible book, I want us to zoom in on chapter 1 and begin a little closer study. First, we see the names of the sons of Jacob who went down to Egypt to be with Joseph, who was already there. Verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So we looked at verse 7 earlier. The population of the Israelites exploded. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. In verses 8 through 22, Pharaoh shows his fear of the Israelites and his determination to control them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah. By the way, there were certainly more midwives than only these two. Most scholars believe these two women were the head midwives. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. 
Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife gets to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2 tells us of the birth of Moses and his being placed in a basket and floated down the Nile River. In verse 5 and 6, we find Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses, and it's, it's almost like God just pinched Moses at the right moment, and he cries out, and Pharaoh's daughter hears this baby's cry, and her heart goes out to him. So in verses 7 through 10, Moses' sister Miriam offers to find Pharaoh's daughter a wet nurse for the baby. She wants to keep the baby. And she says, sure, if you know where there's a woman who can nurse him, go get her. So Pharaoh's daughter winds up paying money to Jochebed, Moses' mother, to nurse Jochebed's own child. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter takes him back, and she names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. Now let's look at verse 11 in chapter 2. Several years have passed. Moses is a young man now. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now that's not a short distance. Here's Midian on a map. Moses went a long way to escape Pharaoh. It's over 200 miles as the crow flies from the Nile Delta there to, to Midian. And in verses 16 through 18, he saved some women for some rowdy shepherds and and Moses waters their flock for them. And then they go back and tell their dad, Ruel, the priest of Midian. And he says, well, verse 20, why did you leave him? Go get him and feed him. So verse 21 says, Moses lived there with them. And the priest of Midian gave him one of his daughters, Zipporah, to be his wife. Verse 22, we learn that they had a son, Moses and Zipporah, and they named him Gershom. Now look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Listen, guys, it was true for them and it's true for us. When we're going through the most painful experiences of life, and we, when we cry out to God, He certainly hears us. He knows, and He certainly will deliver us just like He delivered them. It's just that sometimes, most of the time anyway, it's not in the way we might prefer. We don't get to make that decision. God knows when to do the right thing, and He knows what the right thing is. And when God begins to work out his plan to rescue Israel, a lot of them have second thoughts about the whole deal. Sometimes we don't like it. Uh, you know, when God begins to do things in our lives, sometimes we don't like it till it's all over. And then we realize, oh, God knew what he was doing, didn't he? So we just need to learn to trust him now, even when we don't understand, even when it seems difficult, even when we say, God, aren't you going to do this a different way? Why are you, what's going on? Or, you know, just trust him. Just trust him. He knows what he's doing. Let's pick up the narrative now at chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites. I heard Brother Holly do that one time. I thought it sounded cool. Verse 9, And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting sign, by the way? God's basically saying, you'll know it was me, and you'll know it was my will when you've done it. So Moses, you're going to just trust me. I'll take care of the promises. <laughs> it's kind of like maybe today if we were to ask God for a sign, and God would say, sure, I'll give you a sign. When you've done what I'm commanding you to do, and you finally get to the resurrection, you'll see it was me. <laughs> Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what's his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord and every time you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all uppercase letters, uppercase L-O-R-N-D, what it's doing is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is essentially the same as he had said in verse 14, I am Yahweh. In the 16th century A.D., when William Tyndale gave us his English translation of the Bible, he was the first one to transliterate that into the English word that we use today, Jehovah. You've probably heard God called Jehovah. William Tyndale is the one that came up with that transliteration. It's better transliterated Yahweh. So nowadays you will often hear the word Yahweh to describe this Hebrew word. But that's where the word Jehovah came from. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God says my name is Yahweh. And that name Yahweh derives from the Hebrew verb to be. He just is. God says, I am. Do you hear what God's telling us here? When he says, I am who I am, my name is Yahweh, I am, I exist. What's he giving us? What's he telling us? Well, he's telling us, first of all, he never had a beginning. He just is. If anything has a beginning, it's always an appropriate thing to ask, well, well who caused that? What caused that if it had a beginning? By the way, the universe had a beginning. Scientists know that. So it's appropriate to say, who made it? Now, I'll tell you what some unbelievers will want to do to you. If you say God made it, they'll say, well, that doesn't fix anything. If God did it, you got to tell me, who made God? Where did God come from? You just remove the problem one step away. But the answer to that is very easy and very clear. Anything that has a beginning has to have a cause. So the universe had to have a cause. God didn't have a beginning. He just is. He's not caused. He is just the great, infinite, eternal, immortal causer. Number two, it tells us he will never end. He just is. Something that's very hard for me to wrap my brain around, I imagine it is for you too, is that God is just as much in the future right now as he is in the present and in the past. It's all the same to him. He made time and placed us in it. And to us, everything's either past, present, or future. That's how we function. That's how we think. That's how we act. Not for him. A third thing, he is the only one or the only thing who just is. Everything else depends on God. 
God is the one who brought everything else into being. A fourth thing that the name Yahweh implies is that everything he has made borrows its existence and whatever greatness it might have and whatever awesomeness it might have, whatever beauty it might have, whatever glory it might have from him. We need to remember this. Anytime we see glory or greatness or beauty in the universe, in his creation, it's just a reflection of his glory, his greatness, his beauty. So when we look at the gorgeous glory and beauty of a sunrise or a sunset or a waterfall or a mountain range or maybe a galaxy or a solar system, you know, all these things really are just a shadow of his glory, his greatness, his beauty and his awesomeness. They're reflecting his glory. So a fifth thing comes up that the, the name Yahweh reminds us of actually Ultimately, and we used to say this at the end of every single worship service at uh, Severe Heights when we used to, this is several years ago now, but we used to say, it and point up, we'd say, it's all about Him. It's all about Him. And that's true. We must never allow ourselves to get so caught up in His creation that we lose the fact that He's the Creator. And if we're admiring and enjoying and loving the creation, we ought to admire and enjoy and love even more the one who made this incredible creation. And of course, it's really important to remember how Jesus brings our focus back to this passage when we get to the New Testament. Can you remember some of the I am statements of Jesus that are recorded by John, for example, in the Gospel of John? You remember? I am the. Can you fill in some before I share them with you? What did Jesus say? I am the what? Well, he said, I'm the bread of life. Remember? He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And then there are many other I am statements. You remember when he came to the disciples walking in the water in John chapter 6? And they were terrified. He said to them, it is I. But literally it's I am. I am. Do not be afraid. He's reminding them that he's the great I am of Exodus 3. A little bit later, in John chapter 8, he said, I told you, you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, uh, most of our translations say I am he, but it's literally I am, you will die in your sins. We need to realize he's Jehovah, he's eternal Yahweh God. Also in John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about his crucifixion, then you will know that I am. There it is again. I am he is the way it's translated, but it literally is I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Again in John 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, before Abraham was, I am. Awesome statement of his deity. He's the one speaking to Moses here at the burning bush, and he existed before Abraham did. He's eternal. Look at this in John 18 when they came to arrest Jesus. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, Here it is again, I am. Now it's usually translated again, I am he. But literally it's just plain, I am. And look what happened. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they fall down? He's God. They're standing in the presence of God. He's the great I am. And his presence and his confession is overwhelming them. He's Yahweh. We have a great song that we sing from time to time. I'm sure you've heard it. And the name of it is I Am. It's written by Eddie James. Very powerful. Look at these words. I am the Lord. I'm the Almighty God. I'm the one for whom nothing is too hard. I'm the shepherd and I'm the door. I'm the good news to the bound and the poor. I am the righteous one and I am the lamb. I am the ram and the bush for Abraham. I'm the ultimate sacrifice for sin. I'm your redeemer, the beginning and the end. I am Jehovah and I am the king. I am Messiah, David's offspring. I am your high priest and I am the Christ. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm the bread and I'm the wine. 
I'm your future, so leave your past behind. I'm the one in the midst of two or three. I am your tabernacle. I am your jubilee. I am hope. I am peace. I am joy. I am rest. I am your comfort and relief from your stress. I am strength. I am faith. I am love. I am power. And I'm your freedom this very hour. We must never, ever forget that. And it should affect every area in our lives. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is the eternal one. He's the eternal God. So in verses 16 through 22, God gives Moses very clear instructions about what God expects him to do. He also tells him what Pharaoh will do. And then look at verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In chapter 4, we see that Moses is still not convinced. Moses answered, But behold, they'll not believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. <laughs> that sounds like a dangerous way to pick up a snake. But Moses obeyed. He put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So God gives him three supernatural miraculous signs that he can use to demonstrate to the people that God is obviously the one doing all this. It's not just a plain man, Moses. It's God working through Moses. But Moses is still not Convinced, he just doesn't want to do this. And he's beginning to get pretty obnoxious. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So God says, look, who made your mouth anyway? I did. I made your mouth. I know how to use your mouth. You just need to trust me. But Moses is still not convinced. He's still being obnoxious. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else, not me. I'm happy. I'm content. I like the way my life is right now. Get somebody else to do this. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, <laughs> and God's going to, Make him an offer here that Moses is going to think this is a better deal. It really turns out not to be. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And now it's as if the Lord says, Okay, I know you're having a hard time trusting me. I know you don't want to do this. But I know you will trust your brother Aaron. So, okay, we'll do it your way. But later on, you're going to have some regrets. You're going to regret this decision. And later on, of course, you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, Aaron is the one, his brother, who's his spokesman, who's just made the golden calf. It would have been better just to trust God. So in verses 18 through 20, we find Moses beginning this trip back to Egypt. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife, and his sons, and had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. 
In chapter 3, verse 19, as we already read, God told Moses that Pharaoh will not let you go. Do you remember that? But look what God says here. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then we say, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What had God just told Moses back in chapter 3, verse 19? I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. But we think, well, wait, wait a minute, Lord, which is it? Is it Pharaoh's will and Pharaoh's decision here? Or is this your doing? Is this, is this your will? Are you actually hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't really have a choice in this? Now, this is not the first time we've seen this dilemma for our little brains. It is a dilemma for our little brains. It's not a dilemma for God, of course. Yes, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh made a decision. It's what Pharaoh wanted to do. It's what Pharaoh chose to do. And Pharaoh is responsible for those decisions, and Pharaoh has to live the consequences of those decisions. And yet... The sovereign God was in complete control of all these events, including the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh did it, and God did it. Did Pharaoh do it because God did it, or did God do it because Pharaoh did it? And I think that's probably not a good question. The truth is, if I'm going to err in my little brain, I'd rather, I think personally, that I'd rather err on the side of the sovereignty of God. God's the one who created all of creation. God's the one that controls all of history. God made all of the people that have ever existed. God sustains. God controls everything in his creation. God is sovereign. So in an ultimate sense, he's the cause of everything. But we cannot go into that ditch and stay there and think that therefore we don't have freedom. He made us free moral agents. He did. And we, including Pharaoh, are responsible for all our decisions. We can't opt out and say, well, God, this is all your fault. I'm not to blame. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. When we make decisions, we have to accept the responsibility. You say, I don't quite understand it. Join the club. I said that before. <laughs> then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses, Zipporah, and their son Gershom are on their way back to Egypt, and something really strange happens here on the way. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Isn't that a strange passage? I think the implication here is that Moses knew he should have circumcised his son just like God had commanded but for whatever reason, he just hadn't done it. And I know it's a little bit dangerous. In fact, it can be a lot dangerous to try to read between the lines and, and try to make an argument from silence. But I think it's maybe okay to assume that to Zipporah, based on her comment, that this was a disgusting and barbaric act. So it's at least possible that she might have said, What? You're going to do what to my son? You're not going to do that to my son. <laughs> and Moses may have thought, okay, okay, I won't push it right now. We'll deal with it later. So he kind of pushed it to the back of the line. And God says, this has got to be dealt with. It's got to be dealt with before you can effectively lead my people. So he brings Moses to the point of death. That makes it plain. Moses can't do what God told him to do. And both Moses and Zipporah know that the failure to circumcise his son is what's going on here. This is the reason and the cause for this problem. But now, because God has incapacitated Moses, Zipporah has to do it herself. She doesn't seem to be happy about it. But God's teaching her a really tough lesson. When she says, you're a bridegroom of blood, it probably means, I don't like this. This is totally disgusting. It doesn't make any sense to me. But God requires it. And she finally realizes God's serious about it. So she does it. 
Finally, as they get near Egypt, God tells Aaron to go out in the wilderness to meet them. They have a wonderful reunion. Moses catches Aaron up on God's plan. They go together into Goshen and call a meeting with the elders. And this part of the adventure concludes on a positive note. Verse 31, And the people believed. Isn't that awesome? The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. You remember there's some, some Jews that believed in Jesus, at least they seemed to at the beginning, because they thought, oh, he's going to deliver us. He's going to deliver us from Rome. And then when they realized, no, he's got a different plan than we thought he had, they didn't follow him anymore. Remember that? Yeah, we're going to see that same thing with these people. They, they believed and they worshipped, and that's huge and that's good. They seem to be off to a good start, but we know the rest of the story. It's going to be a lot more difficult than they realized. Over and over again, they're going to underestimate how difficult it's going to be. They're going to overestimate their own ability to be faithful. They're going to underestimate God's ability to take care of them. And they're going to underestimate how desperately they need to trust and rely on God, that He is their only hope. They have problems with this again and again and again. And their experience is amazingly parallel to ours, isn't it? Many, many Christians today think about this. We seem to be off to a good start when we trust Jesus, but then life tends to get a lot more difficult than we thought it would. And over and over again, we underestimate how difficult it's going to be. We overestimate our own ability to be faithful. We underestimate God's ability to take care of us. We underestimate how desperately we need to trust God and rely on God when we don't understand but as we know, in spite of their inconsistency and in spite of our inconsistency, in spite of their unfaithfulness and in spite of our unfaithfulness, God is faithful. He always does exactly what he says he will do. He did that in the day of Moses. He does the same thing today. He was faithful then. He's faithful now. And he always will be. He's God. We can trust Him. We can depend on Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this incredible book of Exodus. And thank You for these first four chapters that we've been focusing on today. Thank You for the way You worked through Moses. And thank You for the way in all of this book You point us so clearly to our Lord Jesus. Thank You for the example of Moses. Thank you for the example of the people who thought they believed and who thought they were getting it right. And yet over and over, they start complaining and griping and whining and not really trusting you, not believing you, even though they thought they did. And Lord, we realize we can fall into the same kind of traps and we don't want to do that. We want to keep our focus on you. And Lord, even when we don't understand what's going on around us, even when we don't understand our situation, even when we don't understand the pain and the difficulty, we just are determined by your grace, by your mercy, with your strength to trust you. You're our hope, Lord. You're our only hope. We want to keep our eyes on you. So thank you for what you're teaching us here. We give you glory. We want you to get all the glory, not us, Lord. All the glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.